Welcome to the Post Talk Live podcast, where we host live salon gatherings for curious people around the world. Hosted by me, Susan McTavish Best. Thank you so much for joining us, um, Dr. Brooks, and for everyone else who's joining us. The topic today is resilience. Um, and I was just sort of thinking this, this seems a good time right now for us to visit this topic as we could all do with a bit of resilience. Um, anyway, so uh, Dr. Bob Brooks is the authority on the topic of resilience, it seems. He is, um, it appears he's also extremely disciplined as a writer and as an author. I think he's just come out with his 18th book. Um, (laughs) He is a psychologist, a lecturer, and as I said, a prolific author. So thank you so much. And where you are in Boston, you just said, right? Yes. Uh, Yeah, right outside Boston, a town, small town called uh, Needham. Ah, I know where Needham is for sure. Um, Well, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. I thought maybe a good thing, this way to start would be, could you define the the word resilient yeah. for us. <laughs> I always I always thought there was one simple definition until I edited a textbook about resilience. Okay. And there are many, but for the purpose of this interview, mm-hmm. and I don't want to overly simplify. For me, it's really the capacity to bounce back from adversity. It does not mean you're not going to face adversity. But what I often say, Susan, resilient people see problems as things to be solved rather than overwhelmed by. So their mindset of a resilient person is a lot happens, but in what way can I solve some of the problems? It really has a lot to do with how effectively you can cope. And for me, resilience basically means when challenges are there, you find ways of coping. And we find it as adults. And one of the main, I think, responsibilities of parents is to help kids learn ways of coping whenever they, you know, uncomfortable situations arise. Mm. Well, I want to get back to the, the topic of coping because I think you can jump from coping perhaps to opportunity. Um, they sort of maybe go from one one to the next. But um, yeah. I feel like resilience, we don't pay so much attention to resilience when the going is good. Um, it's very easy to have a great life when, when the stock market is doing well <laughs> and you're having a wonderful relationship and it's the evening of your, your marriage. But um, we pay more attention to it when things are wobbly. Yeah. Well, in part, we do that because... If you, the initial research about resilience years ago is, you know, psychologists started wondering why is it that some people could grow up in really terrible situations? Maybe my next question, because you're going to oh, have people with the same thing, abuse, yeah. all this awful stuff. Right. And so they started, they started, so the research looked at people who grew up in adverse situations. Why is it exactly what you just said? Why is it that some you look at their adult lives, you maybe could have never predicted they'd be, you know, in very good relationships, yeah. decent jobs and whatever, and why are some not? But and this is a point I want to make, and I hope I don't confuse things, but it's a certain track I take. What we've learned about what helps people who have faced great adversity overcome it, one of the points I started making is, can we use that knowledge so that when parents are raising a child, uh, it's what I call in my books, a resilient mindset. How do you develop a certain attitude that we know exists in people who have demonstrated being resilient, bouncing back from adversity? How do we help to develop that mindset, that outlook, even if a child has not yet experienced great adversity? Because first of all, none of us knows when we may be, when we're going to face adversity. Sometimes it could be a split second and your life changes in that regard. Mm-hmm. So I, ju- I just wanted to bring that up. For me, I actually use resilience. Now, any researchers listening would say, well, wait a second, you're watering down the concept. I, I really look at resilience that it's something we want to build up in any person, whether they have faced great adversity at this point or not. Which, which is more important, how uh, we deal with the traumatic event itself, the moment of the traumatic event, or, or afterwards? Wow. I I would say both, but I would say certainly Uh as a therapist, Uh having seen people of all ages, I get to see people after they have not say, I'll say coped as effectively with it. (laughs) So I always look at, okay, 
you have not haven't coped with this effectively, what can we do to help you to develop uh, this? Because the problem is some events happen so quickly that even people who normally cope effectively, it's going to be so overwhelming for them. So at that split second, you, you know what I'm thinking of is, because uh, I just wrote a, uh, an article looking at tr- tragic events, F- 9-11. Right. You know, when you think of 9-11, that, those events happened, you know, certainly it lasted for a while, a long while, but those of the event itself was, was there. People, though, were overwhelmed. I mean, I happened to be, uh, have speaking engagements in New York City, New Jersey, and Long Island just a few weeks after 9-11. A number of my audience members, they were in Manhattan that day. Mm. And at the time, they were just overwhelmed and shocked. So there are going to be some situations, uh, and then I want to get to another party, because some situations it's going to be afterwards. But if you can look at what was my reaction in that at that particular point, as long as it wasn't totally overwhelming, what was it that I did that was helpful? What is it that I did that wasn't? You then can use that information for the future. What it's like is when I see people in therapy, even if they feel they don't cope very effectively, one of the questions I ask is, can you think of one time you felt you did cope effectively? There's something called the exception rule. Look at the exception to your usual behavior. Invariably, people can tell me one example, and then I'll say, well, what was it in that situation that helped you to cope effectively? What What were you thinking and whatever? So you want people, when a difficult situation arises, to quickly be able to, you know, assess that and handle it. But sometimes, certainly, we're going to have to think about it for a while. Else, as a therapist, I probably could see each patient for like a half hour. We get a couple coping strategies and they're gone. But we know a lot of different feelings are very entrenched. And and so, mm-hmm. Dr. Brooks, let me ask you this then. Um, from, a, from a developmental perspective, are there, based upon your research and what you've learned, are there key insights around what's helped and supported resilient mindsets versus what hasn't in raising and upbringing. Yeah, it's a wonderful question because even before Susan, when when you asked why some people are more resilient than others, without, we could spend an hour on this, but we know from birth, some people just given their temperament, some infants are going to have an easier time being resilient. Mm-hmm. I interviewed you know. Robert Plowman last summer. Oh, okay. Was, yeah, I mean, he would say it's, and we somewhat, I think we talked on this. Um, and then I'll get to your questions. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. It's two people genes potentially, but anyway. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, but that's very important. In one of my first books I wrote, uh, Raising Resilient Children, I talk about that. Why I have a chapter, I think it's called Why Are Kids So Different? And we know that. And in the same family, you could get two kids who are very, very different. Now, in terms of your question, Zach, regardless, see, one of the things I say is certainly when I talk to parents, you have to know the temperament of your kids. Some you could do almost anything. It seems like they're going to be resilient. (laughs) But if we look at the research, first of all, uh, when studies were done about resilience, and people were asked who really had overcome great adversity. They came from abusive homes. They failed in school, you know, you name it. And we're doing relatively well now. And they were asked, what do you think was the most important thing in your childhood or adolescence, even given the difficulties you've had to help you to be resilient today? In almost every study that was ever done, bar none, the first answer was always the same. And it sounds so simple, but I think I I always say in a very spiritual way, it's why we're all here, there was at least one person along the way who truly believed in you and stood by you. And if it wasn't the parents, often a teacher or someone else. Uh, Back in the 1980s, one of my heroes in the field of psychology, he died uh, about 10 years ago now. His name was Julius Siegel. He wrote an article where he called that person a charismatic adult in a child's life. And some people are not thrilled by the word charismatic, but his definition was poetic. He mm. said, it's an adult from whom a child gathers strength. Mm. But one of the things I want to say is, even as adults, we need these people in our lives, people who are supportive. So a bottom line is, along the way, you want people who really you gather strength from. Then... 
the question that comes up, which I'm often asked, I'm smiling, is, okay, I want to be a charismatic adult. So what do I actually say or do? I mean, what do you want to do to develop, um, uh, you know, a mindset in a child? And I'll just mention a few, and then please interrupt, because yeah. once I get going, uh, you know, this is my we'll passion. We'll interrupt. We'll interrupt. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I'm very resilient, so I could take no, I don't. Okay. Um, the, some of the characteristics are this. First of all, one I mentioned before, which may seem simple enough, resilient people really feel that they have skills to solve problems. Mm. And starting at a very, starting at a very early age, we can give kids choices and help them to really become very good problem solvers. There, uh, you know, I often write about just when problems come up, instead of jumping in, it's often helpful to say to a child, you know, what are some possible ways of solving this? If we do this, what may occur? So right from an early age, and I'm even talking about the preschool years, you're giving kids opportunities to look, find out that they can solve problems because you want that mindset. Problems can arise, I can solve them. Another thing that's very, that I've been writing a lot about, uh, and especially during this pandemic, is the following. Resilient people feel that they make a difference in the lives of others. Years ago, when I was writing one of my first books, it had to do with school climate. I said, I wonder what people most remember about school and what helps them to be resilient. So I gave out a questionnaire to about 1,500 people, and uh, it was an anonymous questionnaire. And one question was, of all the memories you have of school, what is one of your favorite memories? Something an adult in the school said it did that boosted your dignity and your motivation. And one of the top responses was when you were asked to help out. I got responses like, I remember when a teacher asked me to pass out the milk and straws. I remember when a teacher asked me to tutor a younger child. And it was at that moment that I said, if anyone's going to be resilient, they have to feel they're making a positive difference. I don't care if it's a four-year-old and we say you're being very helpful. We know through our senior years, elderly people who are actively involved in helping others lead longer and more effective lives. So in helping someone to be resilient, we don't want to overburden any child or adult, but I always will look at in the treatment programs I develop, does this person feel they're making a difference? And I'll just mention one more now, and then please, Bobbin, another very important thing is, how do you deal with mistakes? You know, it's very interesting to me, and this is where parents can help. There are some people who would rather avoid a situation or quit at something than make a mistake. I once had one boy, he was so desperate, he said to me, I'd rather hit another kid and be sent to the principal's office than have to be in the classroom where I felt like a dummy. So at a very early age, as adults and parents, we have to model making mistakes. Because if kids see us getting very upset, it's not very helpful. But even, I shouldn't say, even with my adult patients, one of the techniques I use, which has been developed by some psychologists, is whenever we're working out strategies to make changes in your life, one of my favorite questions is, it sounds very good in the office here, what if it doesn't work? What are the obstacles you may face? And it's not to have a self-fulfilling prophecy for failure, because then I'll say, if the obstacles come up, if the obstacles come up, how do you feel you're going to handle it? Mm. And and when people feel that they know mistakes are going to arise, but when they feel that they have strategies to handle it, they're not as afraid. And this gets to the last point, and, and I'll wait for any questions. Mm-hmm. The, one of the key parts of the mindset when you ask your questions, Zach, is what I call personal control. Some people have said it's almost like the serenity prayer. Resilient people focus on what they have control over rather than spending a lot of time trying to change things they have no control over. Mm-hmm. As a therapist for 40 years, I've seen both in kids and my adult patients wanting to change something they have no control over. Mm-hmm. You know, a child who's born has a, a, a you know learning problem, say, my life would be better if I didn't have learning problems. That's true. But what I always say is, okay, you have them. You had no control over having them. We have to look at how do you handle it. Mm-hmm. Well, I've worked with some adults who who are still moaning and groaning about a decision they made 30 years ago. 
kind of thing. So in therapy, my patients will tell you, especially my adult patients, I know what you're going to say, Bob. Do I have control over that? Mm. So those are just, I mean, I'm giving you a quick glance at also how when I'm seeing someone in therapy, what I'm thinking about. You're going to suddenly have a rush of flurry of potential new clients. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, so, so on the point about resilient people feeling like um, they, it's good to feel like you can make a difference in, in other people's lives, um, if we look at what's going on right now in the world, and um, of course, some households are, are filled with many generations and people are cooped up mm-hmm. together, but then there's other people who are alone and they've now been alone for some months and they're feeling very isolated and and when you feel isolated, time, particularly over this extension of time, you, life starts to feel meaningless. Yes. And it's hard to feel resilient when you don't care anymore. Yeah. Well, what you're bringing up is when an attitude starts to develop, I make no difference, life doesn't matter, you're in a very dark place. Yeah. So you, what you're raising the question, first of all, in some articles I've written about the pandemic and coping is, if we, first of all, if we know people who are really lonely and isolated, we should do something. Uh, a couple of years ago, one of my website articles had to do with loneliness, and they did this study. I don't know how they did it, that loneliness is similar to smoking 15 cigarettes a day in terms of just, one's health. It's just the worst, yeah. yeah it is. <laughs> so one of the things is, and again, if we can reach the, those people, even elderly people, you know, being interviewed, or I'm going to mention something which may seem, I don't know, a little funny. I'm very into looking at the research about gratitude. And I'll tell you why I mentioned this. Mm. We, years ago, uh, some psychologists decided to help senior citizens who were feeling meaning that their life had no meaning or whatever. They asked them to do something each night or every other night that if I had been that psychologist, I would have said, this seems like a gimmick. But it was simply to write down two or three things for which you're grateful. And what they found is just writing it down started to help people. Now, if you would have said to me, Bob, do you think this is going to work? I said, I don't know. But so that was one thing. The other thing is to have people write, and this is at any age, notes of gratefulness to others, what you're grateful for. Now, if someone's sitting, and on your question, if someone's sitting in a room, has no contact or whatever, that's where we have to hope there are the charismatic adults in their life who can contact them, keep in touch in some way. I know that that's not going to happen. When you hear very sad stories of sometimes people have been dying and they discovered like two, three days later, I'm even talking before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we, have to, we have to take care of each other, but there are techniques we can use. You know, before Zach, when you asked, I think modeling and teaching gratefulness is very important for kids at an early age. I think writing notes to kids that you're grateful, saying this is very helpful. All of this, one thing in itself is not going to do it, but all of these things help to start setting up what I call that resilient mindset, a certain outlook, which then gets translated also into certain behaviors. Dr. Brooks, do you think um, maybe there's an opportunity to establish akin to a serenity prayer a resilience prayer, a, a stance of gratitude. Uh, I know, a high of resilience. You guys, can we try and write this here? Okay, people who are watching, can you write a haiku? Submit some haikus and we'll post them. Yeah, see? But, <laughs> but, I'll, I'll leave the, I'll, you two are more creative. I'll leave this that. This is an opportunity, you. guys. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it is very interesting. It's like, you know, I was laughing about it when I said some of my patients, especially the adult patients, when they say, I know what you're going to say. Do I have control over this? And if I don't, why am I spending time on it? And I said, yeah, see, you've really learned. You may not have to come in to see me much longer Ooh. on that. But it's... Uh, you know, as much as we're laughing, there are uh, exercise. I, you know, I've written a lot about storytelling and metaphors. So there are certain images that can really help us to remember certain things because we all remember stories. You know, in my workshops, I always tell a lot of stories. And in one sense, it's what we're talking about. Ten years later, someone could hear me and say, are you going to tell that story again? Are you going to- <laughs> stories and certain images and metaphors remind us of certain points. So that's why when you said as much as I'm laughing, I'm saying, hey, any cues that we could use, you know, in that. I've had parents say, 
All of a sudden, I remembered that not to get into a battle with my kid. And instead, I said, could you help me with this? Or could you help me with this? So they said, you know, I, I often use the term contributory activities where you're contributing and well, people hold on to that. Well, let's talk about that right now, because a lot of people are doing homeschooling. And mm. frankly, it's it's not working out <laughs> well for a lot of parents and for a lot of kids. And maybe because the kids feel the pressure of wanting to please their parents. Yeah. Um, it's much easier to ask your teacher for help you know, with your mask than, than your parent. Could it be a time for parents to try and show their kids some activities of resilience or little exercises instead of fighting? Yeah. It's a, you know what? It's a very tough situation because not only is it homeschooling, many of these parents, if they're working from home, also have to get work done. And right. we're just not, you know, we're just not used to that. Look, if you interviewed my two sons who are grown, but please don't, and you ask them, this, you know, well, my younger son, when he was on 11, when I did a TV show, he, he says something, what my father says on television, what he does at home are entirely two different things. <laughs> so, you know, we all could be very uh, vulnerable that way. It's, it, you know, Susan, though, it's, it's not easy. It's not easy for anyone. I've spoken to teachers. My One of my daughters-in-law is a school psychologist. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, all of this came on so suddenly. If you think about it, I was, I was speaking to school administrators the first week of March. They were first talking about COVID-19 and said, just in case we have to, you know, it's more extreme. And we're all sitting there, every one of us. But the superintendent, very nice guy, said, but I really have to talk about it, you know. <laughs> a week later, the school is closed, you know, <laughs> you know, on that. So I think part of it ha happened so quickly. Now, over the summer, we're going to have to look at, well, our, you know, what it's going to be like to get back uh, to schools. And I think to tutor your own child, look, the reality is I had more patience <laughs> with many of my patients than when you have with your own kids. There's so many, you know, so sure. many other things that come in there. I, I, what I've tried to say in my writings for parents during the pandemic is I, I've talked a lot about self-compassion. Be, be self-compassionate. You know, we're all going to make mistakes. Some schools, I know where two of my grandkids uh, are, they also give them days for, uh, I say, more creative activities that they can do. It, uh, teachers are learning. I mean, first of all, a lot of, a lot of teachers had never, I think, maybe used Zoom. When I quickly had to turn some of my in-person workshops into webinars, I hadn't given webinar. And then those that involved PowerPoint, I said, you, you share a screen? Where is that? Mm -hmm. I had to get lessons. I know my anxiety. Now, if you're trying to teach this to your child. So I think we all have to be, I think, self-compassion. And we have to learn from this experience. Mm -hmm. We have to know that, you know, you just can't sit. It's, it's different sitting at a computer doing a webinar for an hour. I find it as exhausting. See, this is much more relaxing actually doing an interview than actually doing a formal presentation. Yeah. I'm exhausted after an hour. If I was in a, with an audience and you both know you feed off an audience, an hour and a half could go by. I think it's 10 minutes. So yeah. we all have to adjust as, as, as well. And I, I think we have to be kind to ourselves. I mean, it seems, you know, obviously past roles that we've had, past roles and routines and day to day aren't working right now. Right. And it kind of seems like some people are totally crushing quarantine and <laughs> they're, they're, they're being productive. They're doing all sorts of things. And, and other folks are then maybe feeling what's wrong with me. Maybe why am I not so resilient? And it makes them not feel good about themselves. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know what? I'm smiling. I smile a lot anyway, because that's where I tell people to be self-compassionate. You know, it's, okay. people have talked about Facebook this way. How often on Facebook does someone say, I hate my kids and I don't like being so parents, there's been research, parents will look or anyone will look and say, oh, my God, everyone in the world is much happier than I am. Not necessarily. Yeah, I, can say, I can say for all the people who are like, look at Facebook, there's a great snooze for 30 days button, which I found <laughs> particularly, and I'm sure many people have done it to me, useful during quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. But, yeah, but you know what? <laughs> We, we we have to be careful to compare ourselves to others. I found as a therapist, there are some families I worked with that to the outside world, everyone would say, you know, they're really functioning very well. Not that they weren't, but you get to know them. And boy, 
they're not going to announce that on Facebook. No, of course We're not. talking about that. But that's where, you know, I, I really, it's, it's funny. I, in some of the webinars, I really start including some slides related to self-compassion. Mm. Because if you're tough on yourself, it's then if you're a parent, it's very hard for you to re relate to your kids. You know, I'm doing a lousy job as a parent. I don't know how to teach. Should I monitor this? And that, you know, I say we're, we're, a lot of us, this is brand new. I saw what it took for me to give my first webinar. And I already I was I, I was scheduled to speak at this particular place and I had the notes. I had the PowerPoint, yeah. but I had two training sessions. Yeah, so Jack is a new parent, and and oh, congratulations! Yeah, I mean, how are, how are you doing over there, Zach? A few miles. How old? I, well, I I just gave a talk on 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 parenting in uh, in in the corona in the coronavirus <laughs> pandemic. Are you feeling resilient these days? And so, as part of that, we we talked about what what is needed for kids at this time. And, and we talked a little bit about resilience, but the main thing is, or what came from the, the conversation is that children are inherently resilient and give them the opportunity to find their path in a, in a supportive way seems to be a good approach. That said, it wasn't research backed. <laughs> so um, one thing that I'm curious about yeah relating to this topic is wait I just can I interrupt how old are yours is it son or daughter yeah my son he just turned one years old last oh, Friday. Okay. oh I saw the photos yeah. very cute um, okay I'm sorry to interrupt because I didn't know if we were no talking. you're fine he, he's yeah. entering yeah. the popularity I'm sorry I interrupted you though you're not you're not it's it's totally great um one one question I have is specifically is around the topic of rumination mm -hmm. and the role ah. rumination plays in in impeding or developing resilience. I, this is something that I'm afflicted by. I tend to ruminate a lot. And it, it impacts uh, my, my orientation towards action, towards agency, things like that. And I'm wondering if you have a perspective around this. Oh, sure. That's what, what I was going to say is, does the rumination interfere with you taking action? Uh, you know, on that... Uh, you know, this is so difficult because, uh, but I'm going to suggest a few things because obviously if we were seeing each other in my, in my office, I I would ask questions, are there times, just for you to think about, this is free, by the way, you know, are there, time, are there times when you don't ruminate? Are there certain situations? I'm always looking for when certain behaviors don't occur as much as when they occur. And then what do you do? I once had what it you know what it brought up. I once saw uh, it was a man also who would ruminate a lot. He called. He called. He said, "I'm just obsessive." But once you give yourself all these diagnoses, it's not going to be very helpful. <laughs> I thought. But one of the things I said, I said, "Do you really feel right now you have to ruminate?" Now I'm not saying this is going to work for everyone. He says, "Yeah, I really feel I have to ruminate." I said, "The problem is you don't set a time limit on your rumination." Ah. And he said, "Well, what do you mean?" And I said. I think you're the kind of person, and we were joking about it a little, but not really. You're the kind of person who really needs to ruminate. So let's say, and I forget there was around some particular issues. Let's say you give yourself 15 minutes to ruminate. Think about anything. But then after the 15 minutes, you have to take some action. And at first he said, it sounds ridiculous. I said, well, let's see what happens. So what you're basically doing is you're saying the behavior is okay. But what you're doing is you're putting a time span or frame around it, and then it allows you more easily to take action. What it reminded me of was a woman I saw in therapy who also would ruminate. She would ruminate that she left the lights on, she left the oven on, and whatever I said, start with this assumption. When you're going out, just assume you left the lights on, the oven on, and go back and check. And that worked. It's not always going to work, but I said, you're going to be ruminating about it and then you're going to have to go back. So just assume you didn't do the things you think you didn't do. And she said, that sounds crazy. I said, I know, but then you'll basically it was double checking. Now, the thing is, you have to know your patience here, but with ruminating, you know, some people might say you're thinking creatively. That's where I would have to say when you're ruminating, is it creative or is it getting you anywhere? 
The way in which I came is, oh, I'm- Is this turning into therapy? I have no idea. <laughs> That's the point of this. That's the point. <laughs> I'm thinking strategically. Yeah, okay. <laughs> that said, uh, it certainly leads to overthinking, and, and I think it can certainly contribute to overwhelm in right. certain situations, many situations. But if you, I'm not saying any of this is easy. I always tell people that. But if one could think about, can I have a time to ruminate? By the way, these techniques other people have used for different issues. Can I have time to do this? Can I have time? So, so schedule that, a time. Like, ex exactly. Yes. It has an end date, an end time. I'm going to have half an hour to worry and think through, and then I'm going to complete it. Susan, exactly what you said. There are people, some uh, techniques with anxiety. Hmm. Worry for 15, 20 minutes. And again, I know it sounds crazy at times, but what you're doing is... Remember before I mentioned the notion of personal control, the serenity prayer, what you're doing is you're starting to gain control over the rumination. It's not controlling you. So rumination is part of me. It's part of me. I will control it. And it's not, you know, I wish I could say every time it's going to work, but I, I think the more we feel, okay, we have a technique or strategy, the, the more we can say, schedule it. I mean, people have said that schedule a time to be nice to yourself, schedule it. Well, schedule a time to ruminate. And but it, you have to be as strict as can be about it. And then what's going to follow the rumination? I do have to make a decision. I have to you know, I do have to do this. You know where it came up? I do. I do. You know, a fair bit of writing. And one of the things is. I had to come to grips with this fact that some mornings I'm going to wake up. And I am going to have only one word on the computer after two hours. So then what I started doing is I said, for 15 minutes, don't have any words. That's your thinking time. Wasn't that a great technique? That's your thinking time. And then, I mean, it's not always, I keep saying this, it's not always going to work. But then I found, you know what? I'm being kind to myself. I'm saying I need this thinking time. And then, I, you know, I would get into it. It's like some kids I worked with with learning problems, they get an assignment they're overwhelmed because they have to read a book and and write a report, but it's due in a month. So we'll, I'll actually say, let's make it easy. How many days do you need? Do you have to select to need to select a book? Let's say you know. Oh, I could do. I said, give yourself two days. Then we get in. So then they finish after an hour. They say, I'm ahead of the game. <laughs> it's a, maybe it's a mind game, but it gives ki kids or any one of us a sense of personal control. I've seen this in my own, you know, in my own personal life and how I've tried to handle certain things. Okay, we have a question from Cece. Any tips or inspiration on how to teach a young child, toddler, how to socialize when they can't be as tactile and they're just learning to socialize? It, uh, you mean they can't uh, because of the coronavirus? I'm, I am assuming. Probably, yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, 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 uh, again, one of these very difficult things because there's just so much, you know, you could wave to an another kid, which certainly could be helpful <laughs> on this. But I think what parents have to do there is also, we have to look at what socialization is. So I would certainly say if there are opportunities for them to see a cousin or a friend or whatever and wave, but we have to remember attention span could be very limited at that particular right. rate. But socialization also is something that, you know, hopefully at some point they're going to have be able to be with friends again. It's what we do as parents. It's how you know, how we speak to get do what kids uh, think we're paying attention to them. Do when I mentioned problem solving before socialization is also problem solving. It's empathy. Do we demonstrate empathy? Do we spend a little time with the child? Do we try to understand what the child is going through? Do we, you know, validate with it? And, you know, if the child's four or five, one, one could start certainly using language like, oh, it is boring, or this, it's this way or this way. So parents are some of the foremost experts on socialization in terms of how you model it. And I, I agree, it would be great if kids had other kids around, but if, it's a, if the child does not, Maybe there's some things you could do digitally, but you know, there's just there's a limit to that. But don't also ever, this isn't gonna oh, go on forever, I suppose. That's also the exercise and reminding ourselves you know what? Yes. That I, frankly, right? I mean it's it feels like it's endless, but it's not gonna go on forever. It's already a little better. Hopefully it will stay yeah. that way. I mean, you know, here in Boston area, and it was probably, you were pretty hard hit in California. We were, but yeah. things are opening up. So, um, so it's, uh, yeah, self-esteem, 
um, and kids and their self-esteem. I mean, should should one tell uh, their kids that everything that they do is great sort of indiscriminately? Is that going to build resilience in them? Should one say sometimes it's what, what <laughs> the parent do? <laughs> well, it's so interesting, that question, because uh, years ago, before I started writing about resilience, there was like this whole self-esteem movement. A lot started in California, by the way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and so even one of my first books was called The Self-Esteem Teacher. But then what happened is I think there was a misunderstanding of self-esteem and some of it brought about by some of the experts where people started saying, wait a second. Does that mean that if even if the kid hasn't done a great job, you know, you say it's great. Every kid gets a trophy and, all, and you protect kids all the time. You grew up in California, Zach. Was it like that for you? Uh, in terms of the participation? Well, also just being told that you're always doing a great job. <laughs> <laughs> My kids. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, somewhat. It's a California I mean, thing. It feels a little California. Well, yeah, I grew up in San Francisco in the 80s, so <laughs> probably a center of everything. You're okay. very special. You're very okay. special. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. By the way, I don't have as much problem with a special if we mean it that, yeah. you know. But what happened was, why why the, the self-esteem, the, the word has, um, there were so many negative connotations that people felt it meant you don't discipline your children, you don't do this, that I actually stopped writing about self-esteem. So there was that period where so many of my articles were fostering self-esteem in the child. But then I became more interested in resilience. And my notion of resilience had to do with you teaching kids to be compassionate and caring, self-disciplined. I said, you cannot really develop resilience unless you think before you act and you're self-disciplined. So... The thing, it, why, what, why your question was very important to me is kids know when you're giving them false praise. I mean, they really know it. And if it's not earned, you know what the kid's mindset is? I've worked with kids like this. If my parents have to give me this false praise, they're not going to word it like this. They must think that I'm really not very good or kids know this. I think there is nothing wrong, but we have to do it in an empathic way. When kids make a mistake to say, you know, this was a mistake. Let's look, here's problem solving. Let's look at other ways of doing this. Or, you know, here's a paper you wrote. And uh, I, I really think it requires more work. If I can help in any way, fine. You know, and you have to also monitor how much you're helping your kid. So I really moved away from the whole issue of self-esteem. Some people substitute it, but it's different. Self-worth, basically, whether you feel valued in yourself and valued by by others on that. But for years, I used self-esteem, but I had a much different definition than what people were arguing against. I, I For me, it had to do with developing self-discipline and caring. And all of those got really wrapped around then the concept of, uh, you know, resilience uh, there. But... If we constantly run in and protect kids, you know, one of the things I say on that is you don't want to throw your kid in 10 feet of water if they can't swim, but you better start helping them to get their toes wet and whatever. And you have to prepare them for setbacks because if, if we're just too protective, that child is one going to feel that they, they're not going to be able to solve problems. And it really leads them to think about, do people think I'm not very competent? And so we have to let kids struggle sometimes as long as it's they're able to learn to cope to ways of coping. Oh, I, I would think it also impacts agency in some ways. Well, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. I'm glad. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I, I mean, the, the only other point as an extension of that was that if if suddenly you're told you're great or, or over the course of your life, you're told you're great, great, great. And then suddenly you're on the hook for doing something and it's not so great or you're in out of you know you're in over your head and you get feedback constructive or otherwise around it sometimes you're prone to or in, in a certain circumstance you'd be prone to saying you know what i can't do this that's right or, and, or and you could get you could get very impressed i i've seen it in college students who you know always was straight a and then all of a sudden they're not they go to some they go to a college. big school yeah yeah <laughs> 
they have never experienced this, that they're not the top student or whatever. And I, 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 this may sound funny. It has to do be done. You don't want a kid to feel they're totally failing. But uh, I remember a, a young teenager I once worked with. He was about 13, I guess. I thought one of the greatest things in therapy was when he got a B plus and he handled it. This was a kid, like anything less than an A. Right. And part of it was that was his image, you know, that he had to. Because the other thing is some kids start to believe also that, the, you know, it's really conditional love. And this isn't true in every case, but I'll only be loved if I get a hit in a Little League game. I'll only be loved if, you know, I get good grades. I'll only be loved. That's really conditional love. I mean, not unconditional love. And that's it's really what you're talking about, Zach, because what happens is you have a certain image. And then if you didn't get that A. Then if I'm disappointing others, you really feel you're disappointing yourself. And, you know, I I saw teenagers uh, working in a psychiatric hospital. I saw teenagers who the first B they got, they just totally fell apart. They just, it wasn't part of it. But part, the other issue was, can they accept themselves? But because they've always felt the only way they've been accepted is if they performed in a certain way. And they're not being resilient in that way. I wonder if this is a feeding mechanism for cults and cult-like organizations. <laughs> someone finds kind of a roadblock in their life, and then they, you know, someone draws them into an organization where they receive unconditional love very conditionally. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm just talking. Zach. You've just given yourself several projects to do after this interview, <laughs> and I'll be happy. I'll be happy to review them. Certainly. But, you know. Yeah. Can, can we be emotional and also resilient? Oh, yeah. Well, like anything else, first of all, we know some people, even politicians, who are not very, well, they only have a couple of emotions, but I'm not mentioning. Okay. I, I think, I, I know people kid with me, I'll watch a movie. I just teared up. It reminds me of something. I, I, for me, yes, we can be emotional. But like anything else, you know, there are some people who will tell you that they never experience emotions for whatever reason, they've shut off emotions. Then there are some people with emotions get the best of them, whether it's anger, uh, uh, you know, whatever it may be. Often I see it in anger or anxiety uh, or sadness where it's overwhelming. So if someone would say, yeah, I hope people once in a while do feel some regret. I hope sometimes people feel a certain sadness I, I, I've, I've seen patients where they'll say, I don't remember ever feeling happy or I don't remember feeling sad. So it's like, you know, anything else, you want the emotions to be there, but it's how do you cope with the emotions? How do you show these emotions? It, it, you know, one of the things I've been writing about is when your kids look at you during the pandemic, how would you like them to describe you? Are you behaving in a way where they're going to describe you in a way you would like? Are you saying and doing things? And the reason I bring this up is, if parents are feeling overly anxious, what I hope is they find a way of dealing with that anxiety. It's easier if maybe there are two parents, although sometimes they could feed off each other, that they find a way of doing that. And it's not that they deny they're feeling anxious. They could even say to kids, it's a scary time, but then I hope their emotions are intact enough where they could say, but you know, there are a lot of people who are really doing a lot of wonderful work trying to find a you know solution to this problem, and so you're more you know you're you're more hopeful, and th- that has to do with how we you know we cope as adults as when we serve as models to kid to kids. There's nothing wrong. I think it's validating for a kid for a parent to say you know it can be scary, but then to make sure they say people are working on this and people are trying to help with this. It's just like still articles about kids seeing people with masks or wearing it themselves, which I always felt with young kids. I used to do this in therapy, not necessarily with masks, get a doll and have them put a, you know, the mask on a doll practice, you know, in, in, in that way. But what you could say is this is very helpful. You know, you could help mommy or daddy put their mask on, put your mask on, but the message should be, this is going to really help for people to, you know, to get, not get sick. So then the kid feels, you know, I'm, I'm making more of a difference. So, you know, emotions, they're part of us. We all have emotions. I've seen too many people on both extremes, those who have totally bottled up their emotions because they just can't handle it, or those who have not bottled up and you wish, you you wish they had a little, a little there when they were going. Does, does nature 
Uh, well, physical activity have any effect on resilience and, uh, and spending time in nature. So like an outward bound or something. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite topics. There is so much research to show that exercise, and then I'll get to how to exercise is awful. They, uh, they, you know, research has been done at high schools where if the first thing, of course, kids are not at school, if the first thing kids do when they come in is aerobic exercise, even for 10 minutes, they learn better. We know exercise. You're talking to someone who it's, it's like more than really, just the blood moving around, right? Oh, you know, I it's and it doesn't ha, you know, it doesn't mean it's like some people say, oh, exercise. You know, there's research so twenty minutes walking twenty minutes a day even could be you know so helpful. Yeah. The outdoors, uh, I tend because I get up early. I tend to do use a, a, you know a treadmill in the morning uh, on that. But now that the weather's nicer, you know, here and we actually had the air conditioner on yesterday here in Boston. Wow. Uh, yeah, it was very <laughs> just to get out and do some weeding or you know to do some work. It's very, connecting with the earth is very nice too, right? The what connecting with the earth, the soil and plants. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. And you're filthy yeah. and good, and you have to. Yeah. But the reason I, I bring this up is we know exercise is important. And again, it doesn't mean, I always say this, it doesn't mean you're practicing for the Olympics, but just getting out there, walking, or, or you know, whatever it may be, you know, it's helpful. I know if, when I'm here and the, the whole day is going by, I want to exercise in the morning when I typically do it because then I feel more refreshed, but also in the afternoon, just doing uh, something. I think this is a whole other area when kids are back in school. I think schools have to build in more recess rather than have less recess mm -hmm. for, you know, a lot of uh, kids. You know, so many schools feel they have all these advanced placement classes. And and some schools I have given workshops, the first thing that seems to go off and or is minimized is physical education. I would say that has to be in there. We know how helpful that could be. That's going to be another salon. Yeah, well, it, it, it is. There's research to show that people who exercise regularly, for some, are much less anxious and much less depressed. So yeah. these are things. It gets to the personal control I mentioned before. It gets. It's a whole other topic. What are things we could do on a daily basis that we really are within our control? I'm not saying again it's easy. That will that research has shown will help our mental health. So that's why I'm glad you brought up Susan that the issue of <coughs> exercise. That is something we can do. We can build it in. It's it's uh, for some people. It's like even five minutes of walking is like climbing Mount Everest in their minds. So I'll say do two minutes. I don't care. Just do something that could be helpful. Shift yourself. <laughs> yeah, I mean Mentally it's really and physically. <laughs> yeah. See, there are things we could do. That's one of the things I've been talking about in the pandemic. One psychologist years ago, there's an article. TLCs. I thought it was tender, loving care, but one says <coughs> therapeutic lifestyle changes. And what it is was looking at specific things like exercise, like diet, that you can do that you have more control over than you realize. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's why I, you know, one of the metaphors I use when we're talking about images is we are the authors of our own lives. And what I meant by that is there are things we have no control over, but we have far more control over our attitude and response to things than we realize. And that's what we want to teach our kids. And that's the what we have to realize. Things. This We have I'm, control over the small things. Yes. Yeah. Well, we, I always say start small. I mean, yeah. don't, you know, big goals have to start somewhere, <laughs> you know, somewhere, but I, I want people, I say to people, think of your life as a script. I mean, within reason, w what parts of the script don't you like? And if you were writing a new script, what would it look like? And then what are the obstacles getting back to that before? What are the obstacles and how are you going to, how are you going to deal with these obstacles? Again, people, I find people often love certain images. And so I'll have patients say, okay, I'm, I'm writing my own script. I'm writing this. Whatever helps them to hold on to, you know, to certain things. It really gets to the question of rumination. What is my script? Okay, Bob said I can continue to ruminate, but for 15 minutes or whatever time you want. So you're building a new script. I is see. it going to always work? Maybe not, but we have one has to start somewhere. We have a haiku from Maya, which is great. <laughs> okay. Um, could you maybe just to, to wrap things up, give like sure. three takeaway. I mean, you've, mm. you've mm. thrown them in there throughout the, the time we've been talking. Three takeaways 
for us adults um, during this time. So one would be exercise for sure. Um, yes. What do we do for ourselves to <coughs> yeah. build up our resilience? Okay. C certainly one is exercise. Another is more the mindset. I always say this, three things you want to see different in your life. Next would write down whether someone else has to change first. And if anything, if a situation or another person has to change first for you to realize it, get rid of it. That gets to personal control. So it's not, you know, if only the coronavirus ended, I'd be happy. I feel every one of us would. But if it's still here, what are the things that you can do to make you happy? So I, I often start with the notion personal control, exercise, even diet. Now, I must tell you quietly, I exercise so I can have a few chocolate chip cookies because I love chocolate chip cookies. Yeah. You know, we all we all have different things. Mm -hmm. And the other th thing is what I mentioned before, because I see so many people being so tough on themselves. And it's, so, it's really it has to do with self-compassion. You know, really be kind to yourself and with your kids. You know, give yourself a break, if you will. This is so new to all of us. I've said this to teachers when I've done, you know, a webinar. And people will teach. I, I can't, it's so hard to teach this way. I said, oh, you're right. You've never taught this way. Kids have never really learned quite like this. So it's really, what do you have control over? I do feel like exercise and even diet, we have more control over that. And... Uh, you know, it really gets also write down three things you're grateful for and write, think about one or two people who you might want to write a note of gratitude towards. It's so therapeutic for yourself as, as well as for them. Those are simple things you could do. I just got a note today. I, my latest website article was out and there was another psychologist who just wrote to me and he said, you know, during these difficult times, reading this was very helpful. That's all he wrote. And I felt uplifted. I said he took the time to write. Well, we could do that for other people, you know, as well. Yeah, well, so, what a great way to end. Thank you so much. Thank you. This yeah. has been fun. You guys are fun <laughs> <laughs> on that. Thank and you. thank you for having me. This has yeah. really, really been a, a, a great fun. Oh, so thank well, thank you a lot. Thank you, Zach. Thank Thanks, you. Zach, and have fun with uh, your son. Oh, with a one-year-old, yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Post Hoc Digital Salon with Susan McTavish-Best. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a great review. It really does make a difference. If you don't already, please make sure to follow us on social media. That's at McTavish-Best on both Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for attending our digital salon.